0: Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. The New Deal and An Honorable Profession just celebrated our second podcast anniversary. We've had so much fun bringing you the best of American leadership. If you haven't already, please check out some of our previous episodes with leading mayors, attorney generals, state legislators, and the thinkers shaping the future of the Democratic Party. Even in these difficult times, these folks keep me inspired about American politics, and I hope to do the same for you. Find out more at newdealleaders.org. Today, I'm talking to the guy running the most consequential campaign of our lifetime. Greg Schultz served as Vice President Biden's campaign manager and is now his senior advisor to the campaign, coordinating efforts with the Democratic National Committee. Previously, he managed President Obama's campaign in Ohio, served as a special assistant to the president, and a senior advisor to Vice President Biden. We talk about how things look for the campaign, as best we can tell, only weeks out from election day, what it's been like to be with Biden from the beginning, and what we need to know about his home state of Ohio. Greg Schultz, welcome to an honorable profession. It's really fun to be talking to you right now.
1: Well, thanks for taking some time out to have me. Looking forward to it.
0: We're talking on Monday, October twelfth. The way the world works these days, it's good to put a timestamp on these things. We're less than a month from election day. How are things looking?
1: Yeah, no, uh, yeah. Tomorrow we're uh, three weeks out. So I would say I would much rather be in our position than Donald Trump's position. I think. You know the reality is we still have um, every path open to us to 207 electoral votes, and Trump's got a pretty narrow path. Uh, However, as we all know, uh, Trump will do whatever it takes to stay in power. So we have to be vigilant. We have to push through. You know, a lot of the first-time voters are going to come out this year. A lot of people who maybe don't vote regularly, and so we have to make sure we communicate with them on how to vote given COVID. But you know, things are things are positive. I, I think we've all been through enough. Um, elections that I don't want to use the word things look good, but they, but they look good. <laughs> but they, but you know, I think we just have to take nothing for granted. And again, the good thing is we, we are there are a, a number of states that we are in the lead or tied or within the margin. And uh, you know, added together, they're all well over 270 electoral votes that are in play.
0: That's what I that's what I like to hear. Um, what's something that you're monitoring that you don't think? enough of us are are talking about or the media is covering right now as we head into the final weeks of the election.
1: There's a lot of noise out there. And there's a lot of things that I would say Twitter and the political elite reporter class covers. And it doesn't necessarily trickle down to the voters that are truly undecided or are still trying to figure out whether or not they're going to bother to cast a ballot. You know, I think people are going to cover... Um, this confirmation hearing and just broad Supreme court and a bunch of these kind of story of the day, or that's obviously not the story of the day. That's a, a, a big story, but in terms of its impact on the election and the voters, we are still going after that are still up for grabs. Like it, it, we, we just, we just kind of operate now as like this, like political thinking engaged class. And then a bunch of Americans who are taking care of parents, taking care of kids, working multiple jobs. And we just, we receive different information from different places and therefore our priorities become different. So I do think you're going to see three weeks of a lot of Twitter and social media and reporters focus on all these topics. Like this isn't encouraging, but if you look at like how many Americans can tell you there are nine members of the Supreme court or they have a lifetime appointment, it's a minority of, of American citizens. And so the way we take this in, um, um, there's just gonna be a lot of a, a political noise that doesn't actually boil down to, will someone vote at all or will they choose Biden um, or Trump? And so, you know, th- that's one area. Noise has gotten harder and harder to decipher, you know, just with our no longer 24-hour news cycle, but multiple climate. I, I also think that uh, there is there is a, always a lack of appreciation about losing better for Democrats. Um, and I mean that, you know, regionally, townships, rural areas, exurbs. I think we always look at like how where Democrats like, do well, and not enough time on where Democrats need to do marginally better. And that's something that that Biden is so good at. And it's going to be, I think, another underreported aspect of the cycle, because it almost always is.
0: So those are two really great insights. And I want to dive in a little bit. You've been uh If I listened to recordings uh, from more than a year ago with you and the Biden campaign, and you and specifically have been really clear that you weren't going to let social media drive uh, your efforts, can you talk about how, when you're managing a campaign, how do you how do you manage away from that noise and towards the voters that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, so so I always say you know strategy comes from two places: assumptions and data. And throughout the primary and in, in the general, we've made some assumptions about the American electorate. Um, now some of those are based on that Joe Biden's our candidate and Joe Biden decided to run for president because he thinks that we are in a battle for the soul of the country. That is not some poll tested quote or statement. That is truly why Joe Biden is running. And, and if that's, if that's why your candidate is in a race, then you don't move away from that. We also had data. And this is going back to the primary a little bit, but there were some assumptions that, you know, the party as a whole was was, you know, ideologically at one part of the spectrum or another. We felt the vast majority of Americans actually don't want to think about their president. And most Democrats don't want to think about the president. They want to live their lives, they want to trust that the cap- government is in capable hands. And they want to they want to just want to live their life. And so when you have these assumptions and you have some data, you you stick with that strategy until you have some data that forces those assumptions to change. And I'll be honest, in the primary, despite the political noise on social media, that was, it was never our path to, you know, take policy positions that weren't true to what Biden believes and what he, how he views for us to build this country back. Um, And we just don't think, we think, so often social media is dominated by the loudest voices that are often in the corners of very different, whether it's parties or efforts, and that there's a, a broad middle that isn't making a bunch of noise, but is probably um, more in line, at least where Biden is than, than everybody else. And so you just it takes discipline. I will tell you, again, I know we're, ta- we're three weeks out from the general, so there's you know no reason to look at the primary too much, but there was a lot of pressure day in and day out for Biden to be who he wasn't. And that was never going to be our path. And we felt that once we got to states that reflected a broad diversity of the country and the party, we were going to be more than fine. And fortunately, we ended up being right. But that's also the same for the general. Like you'll look and we, and there's been some notes, like this primary campaign really looks a lot like, or the general campaign really looks a lot about the primary campaign, how we present Biden, what the choice is, characters on the ballot. The COVID has shifted, obviously some of that. And competency is always important, but even more important with Trump lying and hundreds of thousands of Americans dying. But it, just, it, it takes discipline. But again, until you have data um, or some other input that make, tells you your assumptions are wrong, you, you stay on you stay on your path.
0: I th- I'm glad you went back to the primary because I was thinking about, you know, about a year ago, uh, the campaigns, uh, it seemed very unclear who the nominee was going to be. Uh, And whether Joe Biden was going to, uh, you know, he had a a majority or plurality lead in the polls, but but it was still very uncertain. And and you all kept very focused. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, as as people, uh, does how do you keep your candidate in this case, the vice president of the United States uh, focused and not getting caught up in the. Whirlwind of the day. And then you you have thousands of staffers and volunteers on the ground uh, who can get uh, easily panicked or uh, overreact to these messages. How do you sort of manage up and manage down uh, in the world we're in today?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So I would say one of the benefits, I've now been with Joe Biden for going on, on seven years right now. So I was on the 08 campaign and then ran the reelect in Ohio in 2012. And so I interacted with Biden, you know, from 08, 9, 10, 11, 12, but then had a chance to serve in the administration with him. And then obviously afterwards. And, and I tell you, the, Joe Biden knows where he comes from. He knows who he is. Um, and I think he understands his priorities and his values because he's been doing this. He's been doing this a long time. Um, in, a, in a good way, and I say, I tell you, honestly, keeping the candidate focused. I think Biden also, it's amazing. And I don't know if it's from just riding the train or really never living in D.C. despite working here for, you know, commuting basically for three and a half decades in the Senate. But I'll be honest, I've had a chance to interact with a lot of Democrats, elected officials, operatives for for, you know, almost two decades now. And I think Joe Biden has closer to the a- pulse of the average American, if there is such a thing, out of anybody in democratic politics. And and I don't know if it's the Scranton. I don't know if it's being used to bullies. I don't know if it's the train. I don't know if it's, it's part of it just who he is. And I think part of it is Delaware. It's such a, um, it's a small state population and geography. So Biden knew his constituents and as importantly, they knew him. And so I think he probably has heard from like, just, I hate using these words, like normal people for a long time. And he he just, he honestly, his political gut, um, is so much closer to the average voter, an average American than almost anybody else's. So that part wasn't that hard, honestly. Um, You know, now, I I actually, I did a call a couple hours ago before recording this, and I was talking with um, some longtime supporters, and they were also asking about some, like Trump issue of the day. And I reminded them, like, here is the voters we're going after. Four percent of the country's undecided. Let's say, um, you know, four or six percent is undecided. And then we've got a, a, a bunch of voters that are would vote for Biden and Harris, but they may not vote. Like, what do they care about? I think so often those that like study politics or follow politics look through and it makes sense, but they look through all of this through the lens of their own eyes, which Again, total human nature, I think it 's a campaign manager and the role I have in the general election. it is keeping people focused, being truthful and honest and transparent here 's what we know here 's what we don 't and I think when you do that even with vol- with volunteers and, and and supporters and donors and endorsers, I do think it, you know it takes some trust, but you can earn it, and um, you just be truthful
0: and what do you think those voters uh, those few undecided or the ones who are were- Uh, maybe just too busy managing life to be able to figure out uh, a time to vote. What do you think they care about?
1: Yeah, I tell you that the the percentage that that are undecided, like truly undecided, you know, it's such a historically small sample size. Um, I I think I think a lot of them are somewhat uh, disconnected to the political process in a normal way. I think those are people. These are people that are they have busy lives. Maybe they've been uh, screwed in some ways by various economic situations not within their control, um, and they want to just you know. You know, they don't watch. They don't maybe don't watch the news. Maybe they read their local paper, so they're not high information voters. Like I'm sure everybody that's going to listen to this podcast is. Um, but I think they are saying, uh, you know, I want someone who will like fight and stand up, but get things done. And, and, and Trump sure says he gets things done and he sounds like he's fighting, but they don't necessarily follow enough media or, or, or you know, have enough data to back up, did he actually get something done or not? But then they see Biden that we're like, well, Biden seems like a nice guy and it seems like somebody you can trust. And it seems like he's got some good ideas. So I think there's a, a couple percent. I I generally think just, they don't you know, uh, stay current with political news. Um, I do think it goes back to economic messages. I honestly think it's the same for those voters who are like soft Biden supporters who, if they vote, they vote for us. I think some of them come from communities, whether it's rural or Appalachia or inner city that have just been disconnected from the political process. And they don't think anybody hears them or sees them. And so part of our job at the campaign is Biden and Harris, is to make sure those voters feel heard and seen, and I think I, so I think it's a little bit different. I think not everybody wants to be seen and heard, but I do think it's a it's an economic message for all of them. For the truly undecided, it's probably more of an economic. Like, here's what you promised. Here's what wasn't delivered by Trump. Here's what we're gonna do. Whereas, like the the possible Biden supporter that may not vote is, we see you, we hear you. Your your frustrations are legitimate. Now, here's what we're gonna do about it. So a little bit similar, but uh, some variance is also an approach.
0: That makes sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it some. it really does come down to that personal connection on some level, even when you're talking at the scale of a presidential campaign. Uh, can I ask briefly, I mean, I've, I've read reports, you know, when the President Obama, or Vice President Biden, or Senator Harris, are coming through uh, the campaign, and there's hitting in the, especially in the Midwest, they're calling you and they're asking for advice. How do you, how do you prepare? And how do you, what's your advice for briefing the president of the United States uh, or the vice president of the United States uh, when they're, when they're asking you for a few minutes of your insights into a, into an area of the country?
1: Yeah. So I, I think, you know, I, had a chance having spent forty four months running the reelection in Ohio. Uh you know, President Obama and Vice President Biden were there all the time, then obviously seven years now with with Biden. I think, you know, Obama and Biden, take those two in particular. Are they are they're I think they were it was such a good partnership because in many ways I'm not you know, telling anybody something they don't know, but they were very different uh in terms of uh you know, President Obama much was, was was much more analytical, Um, you know, as we talk about, you know, some of where the numbers were in Ohio and some of the issues that, you know, people care about and some of the, you know, successes maybe Obama and Biden had in the first term and things to highlight and during the reelect, you know, so one is kind of a more analytical where Biden really, and he kind of uses this term, he's a tactile politician. Um, And he is very much, it's it's very much, uh, I don't want to say an Obama is like a fact-based and Biden's like a not fact-based or vice versa. But Biden is a very relational type candidate. It's all about, um, Biden wants, in particular wants to make sure that when he's in a room, the people in that room understand that Biden understands their problems. And I think that is like, so when you're going to a state and, you know, my specialty, I guess, is being in a, you know born and raised outside of Cleveland and went to a Ohio state, you know, big 10 country, um, making sure that, um, the candidates have a chance to hear real perspectives from on the ground in particular, when you get to an Obama or a Biden or a Harris, they are such gifted, you know, uh, public servants and, and politicians. They've got, they do a good job of connecting, um, people's personal experiences to, to policy or to um, just emotive ways to connect. And I think Biden, in particular, you know, he always appreciated when there'd be some anecdotes about, you know, you know, sir, we had this uh, program you worked in 2009 and 10, whether it's the Recovery Act, and, and here's how it actually impacted this community that like Biden in particular, loves to drill down. Like, okay, well, how did this policy impact him? How did this policy impact the single mother with two kids outside of Youngstown? Like he gets very in the weeds. And so you have to be prepared in particular with Biden. And I've just spent, you know, multiple times more with Vice President Biden than, than Obama and certainly Harris at this point. Um, so I know him, you know, much better. But it's really, I don't want to say in the weeds, but he really wants to be able to walk in the room and say, I understand, I understand the challenges you face and I have some
0: ideas on how to help. Having spent that much time with Vice President Biden, what what do you think the the media caricature of him gets right, and what do they what do they get wrong?
1: Yeah, so ice cream. He loves ice cream as much as you think he <laughs> loves ice cream. I personally have been to I don't know seven or eight Dairy Queens with him, whether it's Salt and Straw or Jenny's ice cream. I, you know, I personally have been to dozens of ice creams I stopped with him across the country. So, so that is real. I don't think he, he gets the credit for having the policy chops that he does. And certainly, you know, going back to the primary to all these candidates who had all these policy proposals and which are all great. But Biden, if you talk to people who worked with Biden during the Violence Against Women Act, which he you know wrote and, and pushed through, and you talk with him, with people who worked with him on administering the Recovery Act. Like Biden is, I don't want to say policy wonk, but he, he, he has an appreciation for policy and the impacts it can have in real people's lives more than people realize. I think people, he is such a, a retail politician. I think people see him as like, you know, whether it's that like moniker, like the uncle Joe, which is like, which is real, which is fair. He he loves people. He, you know, I think he feels people's pain and, and can relate, unfortunately, because of his, some of his own life. So that, that, that part is all there. But it is like, and again, our policy people, um, we've got people like Steph Feldman who've been on the policy team with Biden for a long time. They will tell you Biden with policy folks, like he wants nuts and bolts and, um, you can't get away, um, with Biden with just giving him some like hundred thousand foot view on some policy. I would also say Biden is great about wanting to know what he doesn't know. Um, and so, which is why people should feel, I think, assured if he's forced to be president. He's going to surround himself with people that are super smart and that are going to challenge some of his assumptions. And I think he wants, he wants that. I mean, he wants smart people around him and he's going to maximize their talents and brain um, better than I think anybody fully appreciates.
0: I like that. That's good to hear. And uh, yeah, it gives us confidence. The that if we, can, if we can get a good result in, in a couple of weeks, uh, we can be headed for a, a good future for this country and the world. I want to yeah. talk about yeah. those uh, Midwestern roots you, you mentioned. You were born and raised in Ohio, went to Ohio State. Uh, it, Ohio's in play. Can you tell us how, how it looks specifically in the Midwest and talk about yeah. the issues animating that part of the race?
1: Yeah, so you have seen, and, and we've got uh, our analytics director, Becca Siegel, who's been with Biden now since, you know, we're on day 536, I believe, of, of since officially launching. You know, she, she, she would tell you that a lot of the Midwestern states kind of move together. So I'm going to include Pennsylvania, although I realize it's mid-Atlantic, at least for most of the state. Um, but, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, in particular, Minnesota... You know, it it seems like there, when one goes up, they all kind of go up a little bit. When one goes down, they all kind of go down a little bit. So they kind of move, you know, Ohio, Ohio, slightly older, slightly more blue collar um, than some of the other, other states. Uh, So it, it has a little bit, it doesn't quite follow the exact full movement of some of the other Midwestern battlegrounds, but, but it does close. I think these are economically populous states. And this is why I've been super encouraged that, you know, I kind of call it our North Star policy, but the whole Build Back Better economic plan is something that you can talk about in the Upper Peninsula of Pennsylvania or the Dells of Wisconsin or Appalachia, Ohio, or Pennsylvania. And people will listen. And whether it's, you know, you know building in building America, buying American, um, insourcing jobs, those are things that I think are relatable. And it is something that Biden has, I think, credibility in just given his, his years. And I think it is, um, and I think Biden is seen as kind of a fight fighter, that scrapper from Scranton, as I think President Obama had said. So I think oh, getting to Ohio, Ohio is winnable. It's going to be close. And I'm not surprising anyone here. It's been interesting. You know, we are now up in, in uh, most of the major media markets, in particular, the big three Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati media markets. You've seen President Trump actually go off air. I think you have seen now when he goes on air some places, he goes off air other places. Um, maybe they're getting more cash. I don't know, but it's been an interesting to watch. So we are up with even more points than we had the last couple of months, and Trump is at a lower number. I think Ohio, like much of the country, is seeing a gender gap where women, women's support of Donald Trump has been shrinking for years, you know, 28 midterms, 2018 midterms were a, a clear sign. Um, you know the, the other things about a state like Ohio, where Biden's going to do better in Appalachia or Warren, Ohio or Youngstown, Ohio. You know the blue collar industrial base. Even those parts of the state Biden won't win, he will lose them better. And the rural areas, he will lose better than a traditional Democrat. And so we're we're bullish on certainly Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, but states like Ohio. I mean, I think this is one where you've seen a lot of attention. In fact, as we're recording this right now, Biden is. I think he had just left Toledo. He's like literally on his way to Cincinnati right now, so that's a sign of how serious we take it that Joe Biden is physically there, you know as we speak
0: can I ask as a as a coastal Democrat that Democrats have really made a focus over the over the time when we were in power to uh to assist those midwestern states the the auto bailout being the most prominent example. how come that didn't pay more dividends politically? Uh, in 2016 and going forward than, than I thought it would.
1: Yeah. So, you know, the, the auto rescue is a, a, a great example. I mean, it saved the industry, it saved the economy of this country from going into a Great Depression. Um, one thing that I don't think Democrats are always as good about, I think we can sometimes be too policy, that, that they come across wrong. I don't mean that we over, we, we should care about policy, because it's how we impact people's lives. But I think, um, we don't take time doing some victory laps. And I think, you know, we need to say like, we, we didn't take credit for some of the things we did now. I think everybody will argue we were trying to get more things done, but I do think when we have successes, we need to let people know, like here you, people voted, we fought, made this policy fights, here were the impact, your vote matters. And I think sometimes we don't always connect the progress as Democrats that we're able to make with the, um, the engagement of voters and the successes we could have when we're actually able to govern. And so, um, you know, I think also sometimes Democrats, we forget as them generalizing, of course, as a whole, but we sometimes don't acknowledge people's legitimate, like, uh, concerns and scares and frustrations. This is something Trump did very well in 2016. I mean, there's a lot of Americans who have gotten screwed, and, you know, they'll, it, now it's, you know, people will say it's globalization, it's, you know, the rise of technology and automation. It, it, it's, the, the answer is all of the above, but a lot of people are working harder, making less. And I think Trump took advantage of that, where I think Democrats didn't always acknowledge that, like, hey, you got screwed, but here's what I'm going to do about it. And I think that when Democrats, and that's why Joe Biden, is, I think it's going to be successful because he will acknowledge people got screwed, but then he'll have a plan for it. And then when we when we actually help them, um, you know, help them, I would say unscrewed, but when we help them get back on their feet or actually make a wage worthy of the work that they are doing, I think we then need to take credit for it. So there's a couple pieces on why I think the Democratic Party struggles in, you know, middle America.
0: And uh, so... Again, knocking on wood that uh, that things turn out uh, as they're trending now. What do you think the Biden administration should focus on in order to to resonate and improve lives in, in those midwestern states?
1: Yeah. Well, for, first, I mean, the very first thing is COVID, COVID, and the economy, and that they are they are completely linked. And we have got to get COVID under control. We have to have a plan for um, testing and um, contact tracing. And we have to plan, have to plan for a vaccine. And until we get that under control, we are never going to fully be able to build back our economy. And so COVID and the economy are linked. I think one of the pieces that you would see in a Biden administration is infrastructure an infrastructure plan, an infrastructure bill efforts. Not like the, I'm not talking about the Trump, Pence infrastructure week, which they have, you know, once a month, but I'm talking about a real infrastructure bill and real infrastructure investments. And, you know, the way Biden looks at it, infrastructure also means addressing climate and addressing climate means jobs. And so I do think infrastructure, first of all, getting COVID under control and then infrastructure, are, I think are huge jumpstarts to the economy and something that you can expect in a hopefully and potential Biden administration. Um, and th- that's when you look at like where the crumbling infrastructure, whether it's the bridge, the railways, the grid, the port, certainly across the country, but you know, so much of what this country produces in the, is in the industrial Midwest and in the industrial and in the, the heartland um, that we need, we have trillions of dollars of infrastructure investments we can make. And, and, and the thing about infrastructure is you invest in it and it pays dividends back, not to mention the jobs going to place. And so I think, you know, COVID and infrastructure and, you know, rewriting the ship, restoring the basic bargain with American workers and the work they do, is one of the, some of the things you will see out of a Biden, Biden Harris administration.
0: I like it. Can you talk about your, your life and your path into politics? How'd you end up uh, in this, as you said, for the last couple of decades, you know, running presidential campaigns?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I, I, you know, grew up outside of Cleveland. My uh, parents were, are now retired, but they were both special education public school teachers and my mom taught in a larger school system outside of Cleveland that always in Ohio, we disproportionately fund schools through local property taxes. It's been ruled unconstitutional at the Ohio level and still uh, operates that way despite being ruled unconstitutional at the state level. Um, so, so citizens have to vote themselves tax property tax increases. And so those communities that are not as affluent have harder times passing levies. And I would, what I would do, I would go with my mom door to door as an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old and encourage people to vote for the school levy of the school my mom school system my mom taught at, which is not the school system we, we went to. And so I would also stand outside my mom's school, which is a polling site on election day. Now I remind people it snows in Cleveland sometimes on election day. So you know, I was eight, nine, eight, nine, eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old, standing outside of a polling site, encouraging people to vote for the school levy. And so I, I, I think I, I, that's kind of, I guess if there was a seed planted that had to be it. And then I actually wanted to be a high school social studies teacher. I worked on campaigns, paid and volunteer through time at the Ohio state university, went to grad school, student taught in Columbus public in Ohio, loved the energy in the urban school, but they weren't hiring social studies teachers in, in, in either urban Columbus or Cleveland. And it was 2004 and i had worked on campaigns. So I ended up being a field director on a congressional race, um, and '04, and it was Ohio, and everybody lost. And then I was going to substitute teach, but that—that's that, not—that's a very tough job. Um, as I looked for a full-time teaching gig, and ends up running a race, and then another race. So, I, I guess public education has been my uh, indirect route to campaigns. And here I am. I, yeah, 20, I graduated Ohio State undergrad in '03, and you know, I had my first campaign job was freshman year at Ohio state working for the Ohio house democratic caucus on state house races. It's an amazing place to learn. I think people always, it's super like sexy, I guess, for politics to work on a governor's or a Senate or a presidential, but people that are like in particular, just starting out a state house race, a township trustee, a city council, a supervisor race, that's where you learn. And so I was fortunate that I got some really good, Local campaign experience, which I think has just been a great foundation for now, national campaigns.
0: Did you win that uh, school bond race?
1: Oh no, we, they lost them all. No, they they lost all <laughs> the time. Um, no, and it was no, no. They, they we did not. They looked um, at they um, looked, it, looked at your nine year, no year old face and
0: then went in and voted no. Come uh, on,
1: yeah, yeah. There was some older gentlemen that would always argue with me. That would always, I would remember him every year he just kept coming. It's like, I'm nine years old. Why are you arguing with me? <laughs> you know? So no, uh, there were always, a, there was always a challenge. Um, so, and I remember sometimes when my mom who was involved with the, the teachers union and there were some times where they almost went on strike and so no, uh, but it's also part of my brother is now a high school math teacher. My cousins are teachers. And so for me, public education is, is, you know, an area of, of, of focus and kind of a cause for why, you know, I I do, uh, I guess politics and government.
0: And education is, as, as you mentioned, is, you know, really driven at the state and local level. And I appreciate your advocacy for, uh, all those, all those of us who are down ballot, all the new deal leaders out there. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, uh, the Biden campaign thinks about down ballot races, the Republicans traditionally have been very uh, good yeah. at supporting their down ballot races. Uh, how what's yeah. the, what's the party doing to help to help all those races?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and I tell you, um, you know, the presidency obviously is beyond important. But in in, a, in normal times, when you don't have someone um, like President Trump um, driving us kind of off a cliff in some ways. Whether it's policy or, or foreign affairs, um, local government matters so much. And the day to day person interacts with government at the local and state level much more often than they do at the federal level. And so certainly we have to get Biden and Harris elected, but we have so many opportunities in particular. And this year at the state legislative level, in fact, there are, I believe, eight chambers eight state legislative chambers that are 30 seats away combined from going from Republican control to Democratic control. And, you know, the local level, it's where not only you get your future congressional members and senators and governors, but it's also where so much policy that impacts people's life in a real sense. Like, look at, if we're going to address climate change, look at the action or inaction at various state levels. When you talk about Economic development. Look at the action or inaction at various states that are controlled either by Republicans or Democrats in the state legislators. So we want to make sure that our campaign lifts all boats. And I think there's a lot of local races in districts that are currently held by Republicans that Democrats have a fighting chance. And it's honestly because Biden is going to have real coattails. I think Biden is a candidate that if you're a moderate Republican or an independent or a conservative Democrat, you can be comfortable with voting for. And when you, when we highlight a a economic and jobs proposal, like build back better, it is something that everybody can run under. You know, I think sometimes there are some Democrats at the local level that have to distance themselves from national Democrats. That doesn't have to happen this year. And so at the local level in our battleground states, we're working on the ground in particular with the state house and state Senate pickup. So it is, it is crucial not just um, for politically, but also just for good government, that we elect Democrats, like literally, we say it all the time, but up and down the ballot. And I would say down the ballot is as important in many ways um, as the top of
0: the ticket. Thank you. I obviously couldn't agree more. And especially in a year of uh, census and redistricting uh, in many of those states the Republicans have held a uh, a seat lead even without a majority of the popular vote uh for a decade now so hopefully that'll that'll that can get remedied to make it just basically fair and representative of where our country is um i want to f- finally i I want to wrap up by um i don't think people appreciate the organizational challenge of running for president i mean you go from Uh, a year ago of very relatively small organizations with tens of millions of dollars to an enormous organization in less than a year uh, with billions of dollars. Um, I want to get a sense from you as to how you think about how do you, how do you scale that quickly um, in order to, and, and maintain a focus on goals and quality um, and especially in an era where, you know, one uh, bad decision by a staffer can have uh, can be a, come an international story.
1: Yeah. So I I, I tell you, I I'm going to give some shout outs to some groups that don't always get shouted out. But the, you know the Democratic National Committee and a number of state parties with Wisconsin, Michigan, Florida, and others. So I don't want to discount any others. But but after 2016 made some very conscious decisions that they were going to spend the next several years building up at the local level and the regional level and the statewide level to, to prepare for 2020 and Biden and then Harris, but Biden and the Biden campaign inherited probably the strongest DNC in terms of data and resources and technology, their CPO, Nell, who's tremendous, has been on for multiple years and she and her team have been building. So there's all of these things that aren't built overnight and they take years to build. And, and so Biden has been the beneficiary of so much investment at the state and national and local level. So I'll you know, start there. I, I will also say um, we, were, we benefited because the party as a whole coalesced quickly. And think about all of the great campaign staff for all these other candidates that we have now been able to absorb, and there was all these trained, um, yet these trained staffers that had been having six months, eight months, a year of experience, and then their candidates, you know, ended their campaigns, and we were able to bring on. And so we, you know, we weren't building from scratch. We obviously had an amazing team that got Biden through the primary, and then they're now the leadership anchors of this general election. I do think, in some ways. Uh, you know, we have been able to be more inclusive because of the reliance on Google chats and zoom. So COVID has actually forced us to be probably more inclusive with volunteers and and other staff than you traditionally are when things are so much in person based. So that has been helpful as well. Um, and then, you know, it, it all goes back to knowing who your candidate is and why your candidate is running and we had, we had remained consistent despite being in democratic primary for a year of that camp of the primary and into the general, we just kind of continued. We had said during the primary, we were running both a general and a primary at the same time. And, and the only thing that's changed is now we've stopped the running the primary. So in some ways we have had this infrastructure, you add on top of that, the, the party apparatus that had been built up. And then you add on top of that, all of the great staff from other campaigns. And we've now got this, you know, I don't use like using military terms. We have this army of support and the volunteers and the amount of call capacity we are doing and texting capacity is off the charts. So, so uh, I tell you, nothing focuses one's attention like Donald Trump. I tell you, you know, I, I think in maybe other years, things may have taken a little bit longer to come together, but Donald Trump. I think people realize what's at stake and what four more years of Trump would do to this country, and so honestly, that had been a helpful rallying effort um, to coalesce and build up this apparatus. So here we are with uh, at this point of recording, 22 days to go, and um, you know we, we we are almost there. Um, we've got work to do, but we are almost there.
0: Can I just ask uh, that th- this campaign is so different? Uh, than any other campaign in history for two reasons. One is the existence of Donald Trump, uh, and the second one is COVID. How do you think either one of those uh, plagues will change how campaigns are run, or is this really just a singular moment in history, and after this, things will go back to normal? Yeah. So it's interesting. You know,
1: there's a, a few colleagues and uh, of mine who I've worked with now for, you know, well over a year and all of us are a hundred percent focused on the next 22 days because we, we have to. That being said, I've had a couple conversations more about some of the, and I, I mentioned inclusion in one of the previous answers, but there are groups that um, historically just wouldn't get the attention of a, of a presidential campaign as early as one did, because it was so uh, there was the expectation that things were in person. And if you can't get someone to speak to a group in person, then it was taken as a sign of maybe disrespect or not prioritization. But with COVID, the, the digital virtual world has allowed, I think, uh, that this level playing field and, you know, just like whether you're a community that is 13% of the country's population, or you're a community that's a half a percent of the country's population, you now can participate and have interaction with leaders and surrogates in a way that just, when there was a physical expectation, you couldn't do. And I, and I do think that people are going to appreciate, hopefully in future races, that, that there will the, the Zoom events aren't, shouldn't go away. Now, I do think there is a hunger and a, you know, I miss rallies and trust me, nobody misses rallies more than Joe Biden, who kind of feeds off that energy. But I do think um, there are ways to include people that are not possible by doing things in person. And I, I hope that continues because um, it will just be good for the party. And I'd, hopefully it continues in 21 and 22, because we're going to have super important township trustee races in 21 and the midterms are going to be super tough. Now, of course, we've got to focus for the next couple of weeks first so um, so I, I do I do think that there are some silver linings, and we've just been able to the amount of conversations and dialogues that you've been able to do in this virtual world, whether it was you know some of these former all star casts of popular TV shows coming together or these different salon kind of series on very um, interesting and timely conversations around criminal justice or race in America that the campaign has been able to do because We can now operate virtually, so I I am hopeful that um, we we do rallies in the (laughs) future once we get COVID under control. But we still we still have um, the the virtual interactions as well.
0: All right. Well, uh, maybe we we can come back and we can talk again in uh, December and January after you've uh, uh, been been successful and had a little bit of sleep uh, and then we can talk we can revisit all these questions um, but I want to w- that'd be wonderful yeah exactly I want yeah it's just that where you're daydreaming of sleep um, <laughs> I, I want to thank you for the service you're providing our country this is obviously the most critical election of our lifetimes and uh, and you played a major role in getting us a candidate that not only Uh, can win in November, but also, again, help all those other races and offices and then make policy that improves people's lives. Uh, So, Greg Schultz, thank you for for joining us today and uh, good luck over the next 22 days.
1: Thank you for the opportunity and good luck to all of us. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thank you. Perfect. Thank you, Greg.
1: That was great. I really appreciate you. Uh, Those are great questions. Uh, Hopefully that was helpful.
0: Very helpful, and uh, yeah, good luck, and uh, yeah, I hope to see you. When we, when we get the new deal back together, it'll be great to see you uh, and congratulate you in person. Would love that. Uh, thank you for everything you do. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders, and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.